with better times ahead, yet even in this age before the millennium starts, because as we will see as we get deeper into a definition of the Philadelphia Church of God, and right now we're working on showing where the leadership will be and who they will be. Uh, I'm kind of working backward from Revelation uh, because we read there in chapter 3 about the Philadelphia Church and the open door. So I immediately went to Revelation 11 to show uh, that God is giving a commission to two who will, as we shall see, take care of the church first, the, the temple and the altar and then the worship there, and then have a 42-month mission as a witness against the world. So that is coming, and meanwhile, God is going to be doing something different with the people who are faithful to Him and who will come under the definition of Philadelphia Church of God. Uh, it is not, as I said, truly formed yet, but it will before long, and God says that the face that He has turned from us during this period of spewing and of dying of Sardis, that face will turn to us and shine upon us and bless us during this period of time as we shall see. So in the immediate future, the difficulties, the trials, the troubles and tribulations that we are now facing are going to be reversed and God will begin to bless in ways that it's hard for us to even at this point imagine. But they are described in the Bible and we shall see that. So I left off yesterday in Zechariah 11 showing that those two who will have the witness against the world and lead the end time church, as, as we'll see more clearly, uh, are also mentioned because it says these are the two anointed ones. And the only reference in the Bible to two anointed ones is back in Zechariah 4, which I uh, gave reference to, but that's, let's go there today, first of all, and pick up that thread. Now, I'm not going to go through the first part of Zechariah, the first four chapters this morning. Uh, they have everything to do with the mission of those two anointed ones, but I want to cover that a little later on. We've been there before, uh, but we shall see the commissions given to those two men uh, in detail a little later on. But let's notice to whom he is speaking here. Uh, let's, let's start in verse 11 with a little bit of a lead-up because they're referring to things that were said in chapters 3 and 4, well, all the way from chapter 1, really, primarily. But in verse 11 of Zechariah 4, it says, then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and on the left side thereof? That's something that was described earlier in the chapter. And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Don't you know what these be? And he said, No, my Lord, I don't know. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Eternal, or the Lord of the whole earth. And that verse is then quoted in Revelation 11, verse 4. 
So it's the only two that you can tie into. And what it tells us is that what we read about those two leading up to that statement in the book of Haggai and in the book of Zechariah and thereafter, past this in chapters 6 and on, are those two that are mentioned in Revelation 11. So we see here that those two in 11 are involved in a a specific prophecy here in Haggai and Zechariah having to do with Revelation 11, 1 and 2, whether they were to measure the temple and the altar and those that worship therein, the church in other words, and all elements of it. Now, let's go on to Malachi 4 from here because I want to, first of all, get a very good definition of the types of the end-time leaders from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and a lead-up to it. So in a sense, we're kind of working backward uh, from the conclusion to the beginning, but I think that's all right because it helps make it clearer when we pick up some of the Old Testament examples to go with what we have already somewhat defined. Now, in Malachi 4, actually with the whole book of Malachi, it begins with an indictment, a very terrible indictment, of the end-time ministry of the church, just as does Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. Uh, this is uh, a pretty, pretty strong admonition and decrying of the ministry in its sad shape. And we'll see how that ties in later with the two leaders mentioned at the end of this book. So he goes through Malachi and points out things that are wrong in the church, things for which we have been spewed, both in the ministry and in the populace of the church. And down in chapter 4, we'll probably get to Malachi some more later, but in chapter 4, he very clearly shows that this is an end-time prophecy. Uh, In chapter 3, he talks about making up his jewels, and we know that his jewels are mentioned there in Revelation 2 and 3 in regard to the seven churches. So those who will have crowns in the kingdom of God as firstfruits are the 144,000, if you will. And then in chapter 4, Behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. Now that's mentioned throughout the Old and New Testament a time of great stress, fire, tribulation. When he talks an oven, that is the fire of tribulation that is about to come. And he tells the Laodiceans to have their garments, or to have themselves uh, tried as gold in the fire or the furnace. He might have said furnace. Uh, But here it says oven, so it's the same, same analogy. And all the proud... Yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. So a great fire coming, and then those who are wicked or proud will be what feeds the fire. Yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So, pretty dire circumstances coming. But unto you that fear my name, Shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings? So at a time when the world is about to be burned up and the wicked go through tribulation and plagues and all that, 
Those who fear God will see Christ arise with healing in his wings. We could tie in Isaiah 35, the lame, the halt, the blind, and so on being restored. Uh, We can tie in, oh, many, many, many scriptures about how God will heal. That there will indeed be a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul and the physically infirm. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Calves of the stall are well taken care of. They are pinned up to keep them away from predators, from thievery, from problems. They have food and water supplied to them every day. In other words, these are some that are kept close to the house, in the barn, if you will, and are well taken care of. So when Christ arises, He will take care of us. And this is in the end times. It's not the millennium yet. It's talking about those who fear God at the time that the grievous trouble is going to start coming on the earth. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So other scriptures show us that he is going to begin to bless ahead of his return, and then at some point we will walk on the ashes of those who have been burned as we rule the earth for a thousand years with Christ. So all these end things that are starting to happen will occur and go right on into the millennium with Christ with us and He with us. Now, his parting shot here is very, very important. He says, Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. So in the context of the burning and the tribulation and the troubles at the end of this age, he mentions Moses and the statutes and judgments, the laws of God. So there must be something that is coming into play that a memory of Moses should impart to us, and I shall show you there is a type, very real, of an end-time Moses coming to us. Now he makes that a little clearer in verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, it's not talking here about the first coming of Christ. And we'll see that John the Baptist is a tie-in to this as well. But this isn't referring to just before Christ returns in this particular context. In this end-time prophecy, mentioning Elijah the prophet is just before the, coming, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it is very, very much an end-time context. Moses is mentioned there, and an Elijah type is mentioned there. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse." Now, this was used years ago when referring to Herbert Armstrong as the end-time Elijah and how he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Uh, 
And out of that sprang YOU and YES and various programs to try to help fulfill this scripture. Uh, they didn't work really too well uh, because the parents were basically excluded and you had those who were set to lead those different groups actually uh, take charge and do whatever religious uh, message was sent, whatever inspiration toward that was not from the fathers and mothers but from the counselors that were appointed. So it was attempt, an attempt, however meager, and uh, the results were mixed to one degree or another. But I submit to you that there is more to it than that. What does God say throughout the prophecies? He says that we need to turn our hearts to our Father in heaven. That is the highest and most important uh, level of this prophecy given here. If we can turn our hearts to our Father in heaven wholeheartedly, as Jeremiah 31 says, and He then turns His heart to us, which He says He will do when we turn our hearts to Him, then the highest level of this will have been accomplished. So the first and foremost goal that we should have is to turn our hearts to God and then have the expected response from Him. Now, the second level is that we turn our hearts to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, that we have the same attitudes and approaches that they have. He mentions that, I think, in Isaiah 51, is it? I believe that's the correct one. Or is it 55? I'll find out here in just a moment. Chapter 51 of Isaiah. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. That would be you. doesn't say we're righteous yet. It says we follow after it. <laughs> we're seeking it. We're looking for it. You that seek the eternal. Okay. We've just said that's our first and foremost goal is to seek the eternal. So if that is our goal and purpose, and that's why we're here, then it's speaking to us. I think we shall find that these end-time prophecies are very specific, and they begin to deal with individuals. They are not just things that are written of things that might happen, and they're not specific. No, they're very specific. So when you read of this here, it's talking about you. God intended to call you. We need to understand that, brethren, to the very depths of our beings. That those whom God has called, and then He talks about them in Scripture, have the names that are on your mailbox. Okay? Let's take it personal. We need to see God in our lives. Very, very important. That was the first sermon John Reitenbaugh gave when Church of the Great God began. Do you see God in your life? That is a landmark, important sermon. And we need to grasp the meaning of that. Now, everybody sees God in his life 
through his own eyes, through his own experiences. But we need to take it a step further than that, and we need to see God in our lives through the mirror of Scripture. Because these end-time prophecies are talking about people called and being chosen in the end time. So we can put names here. Names that are written in the book of life. They've been baptized, had the hands laid on them, received God's Spirit, and are then candidates to be part of the 144,000 firstfruits who are the bride of Christ. God has your name written down in the book of life. He will not take it out. Only you can. And if you do, at some point he will acknowledge that, but he's not the one that did it. You did it yourself. Now let's not any of us go there. But realize, when he writes these words, thousands of years ago, God knew whom he would call. I don't know that he knew each of us by name at that point. He would have had to have uh, either stopped or started a bunch of murders and a bunch of marriages and a bunch of divorces and a bunch of illegitimate children and everything that got us to where we are today. So whether he has that level of predestination involved, I do not know. But he, pre- he did predestine uh, the weak and the base to be called. That's how you and I got here. We are the weak in the base of the world, seeking to become the mighty and powerful through God. We're not here to remain weak in base. We're here to become mighty and powerful through God. In that regard, then, let's move on. You that seek the eternal, look to the rock whence you are hewn. Who was the rock? Christ is the chief foundation stone, Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, among other places. So that's the rock that we're to look to. That's a prophecy of Christ there, and it's a prophecy of us in the end time looking to Him. So look to the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. The pit from which you were dug. Out of the earth... From the earth, human beings. Now, look to your background, where you came from. Which human beings out of the earth did we come from? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah that bore uh, bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. So, we are to look to God, number one. And number two, we're to look back to Abraham and to Sarah. And that would imply those who came from Abraham and Sarah through Isaac and Jacob. That was carried over into the New Testament by Paul in Hebrews 11, was it not? Where he gave a list of the faithful. And I think he began there with Abraham and Isaac. Well, maybe didn't know. I don't remember now exactly the order. But he mentioned the patriarchs of old, those who were faithful to God in the Old Testament. So Paul said, look back to them. See what they did. Examine their relationship to God. 
See what happened. Go you and do likewise. He didn't tell you to go to Miriam and Aaron and Korah and uh, the sons of uh, Samuel or, or of Eli, I mean. He didn't say go there and look to them and see what they did. He said go to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Moses and David and all the other prophets. And, another, and he said there's too many to even list. Those good examples of people who served God in the past, we should bring up and look at and emulate. Now, they did make some mistakes, all of them. We're not to emulate that, but the good part, the godly part, we are to follow. So there's two levels that are the most important for us today. Now, the third level is... Our physical fathers and parents with their children. But I'll tell you, there aren't too many of those left in the church because God said this generation would not pass away, speaking of the end time generation there in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, this generation would not pass away before these things were fulfilled. So he's basically working with the older people. And he even says that there will be old men still around when the latter temple is complete. Now that doesn't mean that he isn't working and we shouldn't work with our children, even if they're grown perhaps, to try to help them understand where we are and what God is doing. But hopefully they will be protected as a result of our obedience and our relationship with God. Now God has not called many of our children here in this last generation. Uh, he has to stop somewhere and work with a generation. Now, that doesn't mean he hasn't called some and a few. He has. But most of them are now getting old enough to be converted themselves if God so choose to call them. Are they not? Not very many of us have little children anymore. But it still applies. If we turn our hearts to the Father, and we turn our hearts to our forefathers, and we live like that, and do what we should, then our children will have a whole lot better chance of themselves serving and obeying God. Because they see what we're doing, and children emulate their parents up until age 13. <laughs> and then at 17 or 18, they may start over again. Uh, and not entirely do they completely check out and tune out, but we all understand the growing up process and the independence that ultimately must come so that they can stand as adults themselves. And teenage is leading toward that, and it does come to a separation of moving out and living your own life. So, and it, it, it does not come easy because Papa and Mama don't want to turn loose. And the kids have mixed feelings. They appreciate security, and yet the other hand, they want to be independent. So it's a time of great tumult in families as that time comes. And we have to understand that. So here we have, in the end time, a mention of Moses and of Elijah and that they would be on the scene, at least in type, 
at the very end of the age. Now, I mentioned Revelation 11, and let's, let's review that very quickly in, chap, in verse uh, 5. Revelation 11, 5, because this is an important connection that needs to be made. Not only is Zechariah 4 mentioned in terms of the anointed in verse 11, but you also have this other reference uh, to the things that Moses and Elijah, the original ones, did. Revelation 11, verse 5. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. That's one reference, okay? Let's read another one. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters. Let's stop there for a moment and comment before we go on. The first two references here are two things that the original Elijah did. Remember the story of the prophets of Baal, and how fire was called down from heaven, and then... Elijah killed 450 of those prophets. So this is a reference to the same type of power that one of these two anointed ones will have, is for fire to come from God and destroy their enemies, which is not done in exactly the same way. There they had the wood and they poured the water on it, and then God licked it all up with fire, but it didn't come from Elijah, it came from God. Here, these men will be moving around a great deal, because they have to witness to the whole world. Therefore, they don't carry wood and water with them. And the prophets of Baal aren't going to be traveling with them either. So in this instance, God changes the thing a little bit, and He says, fire will come from their mouths and destroy those who would hurt them or try to kill them. So it's the same manifestation from God, but it will come out in a little bit different form, if you will. Uh, and then the second was something that the original Elijah did too. You remember the story where the, the rain was shut off for three and one half years and then the story of the little cloud and Elijah told his helper, run, tell the king he's going to get drowned if he doesn't go home, or words to that effect. So the first two things here are from Elijah. And let's go on to the second. They have power over waters to turn them to blood. Well, Moses was involved in the plagues against uh, Mitzrayim before they came out of there. And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So not just one of each of the plagues in Exodus, but these will be given power wherever they go on the earth to call down whatever of the plagues they decide to call down based on the circumstances and what God may inspire them to do at the moment. So here you have two of the works of Elijah mentioned and two of the works of Moses mentioned in connection with those two men. So they are not only the anointed ones having to do with the church in Haggai and Zechariah, but they are also tied together with Moses and Elijah. I think Elijah is mentioned first here in his miracles, even though Moses is mentioned first in Malachi. 
and is the greater figure of the two. But these things are going to start with Elijah, and later they will be done together with Moses and Elijah together, Moses taking the lead because he is the bigger picture or the bigger bigger figure from history than Elijah is. And in that sense did a more important work because he brought the law from God. And there's nothing more important that a human being has done uh, than that uh, in history. You might equate Noah saving eight people on the boat, but I don't think that's as big either. God could have saved them in many ways. But Moses, God worked through Moses in a singular act to bring his law codified to the earth. It had been involved before orally from God to Adam and Eve and others, but there it was codified and put down in writing and sealed in the Ark of the Covenant forever. So I don't think there's a greater act that God worked through a man than what Moses did there. That is even bigger than the Red Sea and coming out into the wilderness. So, we see definitely the end time two anointed tied to the church in Zechariah with more detail to follow. And we see them tied with Moses and Elijah in the end time. And doing that, then let's go to the New Testament to Luke 5. I mean, excuse me, Luke 1, verse 5. Luke 1. Okay. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, and of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he gives the pedigree here of a Levitical priesthood generation ascribed to who is about to be talked about here. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the eternal, blameless. So these were upright, uh, upstanding citizens, seeking and trying to follow God as best they could. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well stricken in years, so they're getting to be old people like Abraham and Sarah were. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priests, and the people were praying uh, at the time of incense, Verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the eternal standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, as he went through the duties of a priest at the time his course was in, this did not normally happen. You just went through the rituals that the priest had to do. But this time an angel appeared. How would you feel? scare you half to death. But the angel said to him, Fear not, Zecharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Eternal, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So God caused John to be born via miracle here and preserved. 
because he had a job to do. Now, he probably took the Nazarite vow, which we understand from the Old Testament, was not to drink wine uh, or strong drink. I don't know whether Nazarite or not, because I don't know whether he cut his hair or not, but that was part of the Nazarite vow as well. So, maybe that's not so, but he wasn't going to drink wine or strong drink. Uh, Christ did, and they called him a wine-bibber. Then they... They derided John because he didn't. So, you know, you can't win either way. Anyway, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the eternal their God. Now remember, and we'll see it here in the New Testament in a moment, that John the Baptist and Elijah were types together of what would happen before Christ came the first time. Now, what did it say there in Malachi 4, verse 6? That Elijah would turn the hearts of the fathers, first of, of the, our fathers, first to God. Same thing said about John the Baptist here. Okay? The, you, you'll see the parallels as we go through. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of whom? Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the eternal. So the spirit and power of Elijah would be there. He would be able to do some miracles. He would be able to prepare a people and prepare a way for Christ, as we'll see. Now, how did Elijah turn the hearts of the fathers to the children? He destroyed the prophets of Baal, and then they began to turn to God once again, the people. So he very uh, strongly, in his original life, the original Elijah, turned the people's hearts to God. And that's the highest level that we can ascribe to Malachi 4.6. And it also carries over to John the Baptist, who was a type of Elijah himself. So they'll turn the hearts of the fathers and children of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the eternal. So he preached, he baptized, he prepared people for the coming of Christ, who was born six months later, after he was. And Zechariah said to the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Same questions that came to Abraham and Sarah's mind. Uh, and the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God. So this was one of the archangels, not just any old angel. Uh, and am sent to speak to you and to show you these glad tidings. And behold, you shall be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because you believed not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. God chided Sarah, particularly, and Abraham for not truly believing. She laughed, remember? And I think they both chuckled at one point there in the story. So, when an angel comes and says that you are to do something special, or to be used in a special way, it truly scares you. It truly does. It did in the original, and it did here. And the penalty in this case, 
<laughs> you didn't really believe me. You questioned. You're not going to speak another word until it happens. Now, that was a message not only to Zacharias, but to his wife and to all those around in the priesthood and whoever else. It was a message from God that this has been said and it will happen. Now, maybe he could write it down and tell people what had happened, but when he wanted to tell people that he was supposed to have a son, he opened his mouth, nothing would come out. He was dumb. And the people waited for Zecharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. What's he doing in there? Well, he was scared spitless. And I'm sure he had to gather himself and try to figure out, man, what was that all about? And I can't speak. So, yeah, he, he tarried there a while. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he became, beckoned to them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And then Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus has the Eternal dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. She had been barren, and in those days that was a reproach. We were to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And all of the forefathers wanted to have children, and it was looked upon as shame if you didn't. And here she was, old and past the time, couldn't normally have become pregnant, and she was. And she was embarrassed, I guess. <laughs> you know, here I am in my wrinkles, people, and uh, she was kind of trying to hide. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So he, he did double duty here. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And we really know the story about how he told her she would be blessed among women. And she, in verse 29, was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now, she reacted a little differently than Zacharias had. Uh, they were righteous people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, but maybe they weren't quite as uh, astute religiously and righteously as Joseph and Mary. Now, in the meantime, Mary had, she was a cousin to Elizabeth, also had pre-knowledge of Gabriel coming to her cousin, or well, not to her cousin, but to her cousin's husband, and knew that Zacharias had been struck dumb, and at this point still was, because it was six months later and John the, Bapt or John the Baptist hadn't been born yet. So I'm sure Elizabeth and Mary had shared that story and knew the situation with Zacharias and knew that he had questioned it, and the sign that had been given was he couldn't speak. So Mary kept her mouth shut, and she wondered in her own mind, now what does this actually mean? But she didn't question Gabriel. So it may have been partly a religious or righteous level on her part, and it might have been partly just being scared because of the experience of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Anyway, uh, how much more of this do I want? Because we're leading up here to 
to Christ being here, but the point that is being made is before he returns, what happens? Or before he came the first time, what happened? And what does it portend for the future when he's coming again? So nothing with God is impossible, verse 37. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Eternal, be it to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So she accepted the commission, if you will, that she had been given to be impregnated by God's Holy Spirit and to give birth to Christ. Mary rose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. Now let's skip on down a bit here. Uh, Let's go. Uh, Mary went and spent time with Elizabeth, verse 56. Verse 57 then. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Eternal had showed great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that he was circumcised on the eighth day, and his mother answered and said, uh, they, wait a minute, uh, oh, they wanted to name him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, not so, he shall be called John, because that's what Gabriel had said originally. <coughs> and they said to her, There is none of your kindred that is called by this name. Come on, let's keep it in the family. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. So he was still struck dumb even at the birth. And he asked for a writing table and wrote saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed. And he spoke and praised God. And fear came all on them that dwelt round about, and all these sayings were noised abroad through all the hill country of Judea, and all that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? Because they saw the miracles, and they thought, There's something special going on here. What's, and what's this all about? Uh, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying, So... Not only was his mouth opened, but God inspired his mind to make a prophecy. So, Zacharias, at that point, became a prophet. Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So he saw, and God inspired him to say, that John was the beginning of redemption of the people of God from the sin that they were enmeshed in when John arrived and when Christ arrived, that there was an answer, a redemption coming. John was going to be the one to pave the way, prepare the way for that to happen. Uh, And Christ did come as our great Redeemer. So this was the beginning of the story. And we'll see that in the end time, this will be enacted out as well, as there are those who are sent to prepare the way for the Redeemer to come and do the actual redemption, not just open the door for it, as he did at his first coming. Uh, Now, over 69 is where I want to be. And, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So, John the Baptist was a type of Christ, if you will. And through him would salvation come 
through his cousin Christ. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which has been since the world began. So he says, what you're seeing here is a fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, it was a partial fulfillment because there is one more coming, as we shall see. Uh, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Now, I could stop here and go back and show you a lot of those prophecies showing how God will provide uh, protection for His people in the end time. He will give them a place of refuge. He will be a wall of fire around them. He will give them blessings like a stalled calf, as we read in Malachi 4, but it's all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. It's everywhere. All those blessings that will come and the protection that will be afforded. So this is not only a prophecy of what Christ would do in his lifetime then, but what would come in the future. Let's read on. 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, they were still referring to the Old Testament covenant then, and the new would be introduced by Christ and provided to us. That he would grant to us that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And that's what we're told to do throughout the Bible, is serve God in holiness and righteousness. And you, child... Speaking of John, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For you shall go before the face of the eternal to prepare his ways. He would come, he would preach, he would baptize, he would prepare people for Christ to deal with. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. <clears throat> now salvation had not even yet been offered, right? It wasn't offered in the Old Testament, just promise of land. And blessings of all kinds, really, but not salvation. So this was a prophecy of Christ bringing and offering salvation to the New Testament church. And the forgiveness of sins, how? Through the sacrifice of Christ. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. So he grew up, he dwelt in the wilderness, in the desert, until the time for him to begin his actual ministry. Let's go on to chapter 3, pick it up in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, uh, and so on, verse 2, Ananias, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So he was dwelling in the wilderness, as aforementioned, and now the angel came to John himself. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So he had been consigned to the desert, to the wilderness, until the time came. And then the angel appeared and says, now I want you to go preach. So that's what he began to do. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, so that tells you right there that this is brought forward from the Old Testament prophecies. 
saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. That's a reference to Isaiah 40, verse 1, and the ensuing verses there. And it is an end-time prophecy for this end time that we have. So we'll see that John the Baptist had a preparatory work before Christ's first coming, and a later type of Elijah and John the Baptist will come in the end. I, I say that ahead of time, but we will go to the Scriptures to show it. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill be brought low, and the crooked made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that is a prophecy that goes on beyond Christ's first coming. So what Isaiah said comes clear to the end of the age. And John the Baptist was in the middle of that. And Christ did, in a spiritual sense, bring the mountains low and raise the valleys, did he not? What was the highest level of authority on earth at the time Christ came? Was it Herod? No, it was Satan the devil. That was the highest mountain, the highest government, the highest level around. And then after 40 days of fasting, Christ leveled that mountain, took it right down. And he also showed supremacy above the governments of the earth. Herod tried to have him killed, just as Pharaoh did Moses. And it didn't work. So even the physical rulers of the earth, their hill was made low before Christ. Who did Christ exalt? The valleys, the weak and the base, the poor, the wretched, the miserable, the sinners. He came to save sinners, to exalt those on the bottom and to knock down the mountains. Now that will be fulfilled spiritually in the end time as well when Christ comes back with his vesture dipped in blood and puts down all principles and authorities, and when he also takes Satan by the neck and chains him for the millennium for a thousand years. So it is fulfilled on a spiritual level uh, in both instances, and there may even be some change in topography uh, physically at the last time with great earthquakes and various things occurring. And some of the mountains may be lowered, made lower, and some of the valleys may be exalted, having been polluted greatly by mankind's end-time efforts. And we need fresh soil to produce truly good crops. So who knows? Maybe the mountains that are up here will be made as low as the valleys were, and maybe the valleys that are polluted will be made as high as the mountains were. So it, people say it's going to be made level. It, scripture doesn't necessarily say that. It says one will be brought low and the other exalted. So who says it has to come even? So everything's flat. Do you want the whole world to be Kansas? Well, Kansas isn't completely flat, but you've got the Flint Hills in the east. But it's almost. Maybe it goes like that. I like that better because I like mountains. So that's my theory for whatever that's worth. Anyway. Verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, does that take it to the end time? 
Did all flesh see the salvation of God when Christ was here the first time? Not a chance. Very small, uh, very small what they saw, although he may have traveled all over the earth uh, before his specific ministry began for three and a half years. So perhaps all the earth did see him, at least in part. But this seems to be a bigger picture. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. I think actually witness Christ returning and people rising to meet him in the air, and they'll actually see that salvation with their own eyes. So you have a lesser fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. And that's the way the prophecies are all written. Smaller fulfillments through the ages with the huge ones at the end. Always. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. He, he wasn't really sweet and nice and diplomatic, was he? <laughs> what did he say? Here are the people coming from the city to be baptized. I want to be baptized. Baptize me in the name of who? But baptize me. Then what was his answer? You're a generation of snakes. I think that John the Baptist was fairly straightforward. He was not a, a mousy type at all. He wasn't a reed shaken in the wind. Uh, so, be that as it may, I don't think the two witnesses are going to come as reed shaken in the wind either. I really don't. That isn't the type. Elijah wasn't that type, was he? Come on, you prophets of Baal. Come on. Let's see if you can wake your God up. Let's get some fire down here. And on and on. We'll go there. And here you have John the Baptist. People come out to counsel with him for baptism. Would you please baptize me? You snake. <laughs> that doesn't go in our politically correct environment today, does it? You generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you think that's going to happen again? How many times have I said, if you come here to be part of the end time work of God, to do what God wants done, that is the correct reason for coming. But if you've come here to save your sorry hide from the tribulation, that is the wrong motivation. Now, do people have the same motivations today that they did then? Some of them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Those are pretty harsh words. And also the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree which brings forth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now they, they were perplexed and confused at that point. We're out here as sons of Abraham and we want to be righteous. We are righteous in fact. And now we need to be baptized. He says, no, you're not righteous. You're self-righteous. Does that sound like Laodicea? You have need of nothing. You have Abraham to your father. And he said, you're just a generation of snakes. Abraham isn't your father. What did Christ say? Generation of vipers. You're of your father, 
the devil. Now, they may have been physically, by blood, related to Abraham, but he said, your real father, Satan, the devil. So Satan, I mean, John, laid the foundation right here for what Christ would later tell the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Did he not? What shall we do? No. We're righteous. We're doing we're living properly. Everything's good. What do you mean? What shall we do? Why do you call us snakes? Why do you tell us to repent? We don't need that. Does it sound like preaching to God's church today who all think they're Philadelphians? He answered and said to him, He that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. He that has meat, let him do likewise. Give of what you have to the poor. Show the fruits of righteousness. You mean we got to give away something? My, my closet would be half empty. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said to him, Master, what shall we do? Even called him a leader, a master. And he said to them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. Accept that which is given, and don't try to get more. In other words, don't have materialism or materialistic viewpoints. What do we find in America today? Everything is about materialism. Though the message is the same, really, today, that it was then. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? Everybody wanted to know about, what about me? (laughs) You know? Didn't... We had a movie some years ago called What About Bob? I don't know whether you saw it or not, but all the way through the movie, Bob was saying, What about me? I think, as I recall, he was kind of lazy and a scoundrel and a jerk. I don't remember, but he was always worried about me. Extreme narcissism. We're seeing the same thing right here. There's nothing new under the sun. Human nature has always been the same. What do we do? And he said to them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So don't misuse the power you've got as the military. Don't kill people that get in your way and take care of them. Uh, And be content with what you have. Don't be materialistic. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. So... He made it clear then that he wasn't. John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whom shoes uh, I am not worthy, to unloose, or worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Christ offered to people who would repent the Holy Spirit, did he not? And he also said to those that don't, fire's coming on you whether it be fire of tribulation or whether it be the lake of fire. And many other things in his exhortation preached he to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved to him for Herodias his brother Philip's wife and for all the evils which Herod had done, John the Baptist had a relationship with Herod and told him his sins. And Herod was ashamed and embarrassed about it and He shut John up in prison. And then Christ appeared and at 30 years of age began to preach. We'll leave that story off there. 
Um, let's go then from there to Matthew 3 and add a little to this story. This may seem to be taking a long time to go through and show, but uh, I think you can see that it's <coughs> worth tying together because the original Elijah and Moses did certain things, and then those who appeared uh, before Christ did certain things, and the end-time ones do similar things. So, what we are reading here is not history, it's prophecy. It's for the future. So it involves us. And when they said, what about me back there? You and I can say, what about us? What about me? What should I do? So let's not condemn those back there who question too much. Let's realize maybe we have something we need to do too. And the scriptures will show us just what it is that we need to do. Matthew 3. Uh, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he did his preaching even in the wilderness. Isaiah 40 says there will come one in the end doing the same thing. And saying, Repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that a message that's still applicable today? Is the kingdom of heaven more at hand than it was then? (laughs) Well, Christ's first coming was imminent, but not his second coming, which is even more powerful in some respects, than his first. Because he came to offer remission of sin and offer a chance at salvation, whereas his second coming will give that salvation. So his second coming is far more complete and more powerful than his first. Not only will he give it to his 144,000, he will offer salvation to everyone on earth at that time and call them all in the millennium. So far more will be done in the second. So he said, Repent, for this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the eternal and make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel hair and leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, I heard a sermon, oh, decades ago in Worldwide, where they tried to kind of dress John the Baptist up and said that he had fine leather clothing and he had a fine cashmere coat and all that. I don't think so. Out in the wilderness, there's not a whole lot of water, and he didn't. I don't think he had a whole lot of money. And when you're sleeping in caves and on the ground and out in the wilderness, cashmere and fine leather would not look like cashmere and fine leather for very long. And he ate bugs and honey. So he didn't dine sumptuously. (laughs) He just was kind of a survivor, if you will. He ate clean bugs, but he ate bugs, locusts or grasshoppers. So, uh, you know, some of the imaginations that people have sometimes, I think, take a wrong turn. He was out in the wilderness, and out in the wilderness, you barely get by, and uh, you don't look like you just came out of GQ magazine. They didn't have that back then, but you follow. They then went out to him, Jerusalem and Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, so They came from everywhere to listen to John, who was talking about one to come. Uh, 
Isn't that our focus today? One to come. So they came and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, now he went ahead and baptized the people, but when he saw those leaders, Pharisees and so on, uh, he had a little different message for them, one we already read. Generation of vipers, who's warned you to come, flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham, so we're A-OK. And then he re- repeats the Acts thing about cutting down barren trees. And he said in verse 11, I baptize you with water to repentance, but there's one mightier than I who's coming, and I'm not worthy to uh, walk in his shoes. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he adds more detail uh, than Luke did. Then comes Emmanuel from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized. And John said, no, I need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. And Emmanuel answered, saying to him, Suffer it be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. So he says, This is a prophecy, and you're here to help fulfill it, so let's get on with it. And he did. And Emmanuel, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and to a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not proud, well pleased. Then immediately came the temptation where he knocked down the highest mountain around, the highest level of authority, Satan the devil. Uh, I have a note here, Matthew six Let's hit that real quickly. No, that's... Oh, I'm in five. <clears throat> Why did I write that down? Anybody remember? I don't know why I did. Let's go to Mark 6. Maybe I meant Mark 6. It must have been what it was. Mark 6. And begin in verse 14. Christ had been anointing with oil and so on. But in verse 14, King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said it is Elijah. So they referred back to an actuality in some respects. Others said it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. So they were all mixed as to who they thought uh, the type was here. And there was a type. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded, he is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth, and laid hold on John, and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So Herod had married his brother's wife. And scared Herod when Christ showed up, because he thought immediately, Oh man, John's been... (laughs) He's been resurrected, and am I in trouble? 
For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold on John. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful you to have your brother's wife. 19. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. Now Elijah has already been mentioned, that he would be in the spirit of Elijah, remember there in Luke. Now what did Elijah have, the original Elijah? Name of Jezebel, who had avowed to kill Elijah, but could not. And then it was prophesied that the dogs would eat her in the street, which happened. Then we have an end-time prophecy of Jezebel there with Thyatira. So we see Jezebel herself showing up in type as well. So Elijah and Jezebel are tied together with John and Herod's wife. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So they did have somewhat of a relationship where they talked back and forth, and Herod was generally happy to see John the Baptist. Now that's true with Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar. It's true with uh, uh, the story of Esther and in other places where God had his men involved with the leaders of the world. And they had a relationship. And even Nebuchadnezzar did not want to see Daniel thrown to the lions. And, oh my, what has happened here? How did I get set up? So, those things happened, and it happened again in John the Baptist's life as well. We shall see that it may also happen in the end time Elijah's life as well. Remember, this is all about us, as we said in Isaiah 51. It's the end time church and people of God and their leadership. Anyway, when a convenient day was come, verse 21, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and them that sat with him, and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said to the damsel, Ask me whatsoever you will, and I will give it you. Remember the setup with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and with others? He was set up here. John the Baptist was more or less a friend to him, and they talked together gladly. And he said to her, Whatsoever you shall ask of me, I will give it you even to half my kingdom. So he thought he was being a man of great largesse and generosity and so on. And then the setup came, or became obvious. And she went forth and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with hate. That's not what a girl normally would do, is it? What would she ask for? No, she went to Mama for advice, and Mama had a hate going on. Just like Jezebel. She came with haste to the king and asked, saying, I will that you give me, by and by, in a charger, the head of John the Baptist. Kind of gruesome. I want you to get a tray and bring me John the Baptist's head. Bloody and gross. The king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And he didn't do it by and by. He immediately 
He didn't even want to think about it. He immediately uh, sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded John in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And then the disciples came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. John the Baptist was a type, a forerunner of Christ. He lost his head. Uh, the original Elijah did not, so the stories are not exactly the same in each time that this occurred. Then Christ, of course, lost his own life, and John had typified that by losing his. Now, the end time two anointed, particularly Zerubbabel, will become a type of Christ, a forerunner of Christ, set as an ensign, as the last verse or two of Haggai says, and what will happen there crucified, assassinated, killed. Same story. Repeated. little different situation, a little different manner, but the same result. Now let's go to Matthew 11, and we'll see this draw tighter. <clears throat> Matthew 11. I'm already out of time. How do I do this? Let's stop right there, and we'll go to Matthew 11 tomorrow. Well, see, this is Wednesday, isn't it? Tomorrow we're going to Zion, meeting at 1 o'clock at the lodge in Zion. Uh, we decided to meet in the lodge instead of in the park because the weather is turning cold, colder, and there is even a chance of rain tomorrow. So we'll meet up at the lodge. You can drive up there now. Uh, so it's in, I think we're all familiar, except maybe Gloria hasn't been up there. Uh, but if you go into Zion Park and up the canyon to the lodge and restaurant and everything that is there, if you go in where the gift center and the, the registration area is, there's a hall off to the right. Uh, 